This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this current issues in assessment seminar. Uh, I'm Paul Newton and I'm heading up the Cambridge Assessment Network Division, which is responsible for bringing you this seminar series. Okay, well, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome and to introduce to you Professor Jane Elliott. Jane is Professor of Social Research and Director, uh, Head of the Department of the Centre for Longitudinal Studies at the Faculty of Policy and Society at the Institute of Education in London. Jane originally studied mathematics with uh, social and political science at King's College, Cambridge, and she worked in Cambridge till the mid-90s at the university. And then she progressed through a series of universities, Manchester, Liverpool, Harvard, I believe, before um, coming to her current role, which is at the Institute of Education. Um, The Centre for Longitudinal Studies, the CLS, is an ESRC resource centre, which is responsible for Britain's internationally renowned birth cohort studies. Um, Three in particular, the 1958 National Child Development Study, the 1970 British Cohort Study and the Millennium Cohort Study. And Jane's going to be introducing her work at the CLS today and giving us an insight into the fantastic resource that those surveys provide. Thanks, Jane. Well, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. And I've realised it's quite a monumental title we've got here, really, What Can We Learn from the British Birth Cohort Studies? And given that there's over 2,000 papers that have been written based on the data, we could be here till well after Easter. So I'm really just going to give you a taster of some of the things um, within the studies and that have been done with the studies. So my main objectives today are to give you a broad introduction to what a cohort study is and to give you a sense of the content and design of the studies. But of course I'm making a particular focus today on assessment and assessment through the life course and the sorts of issues we need to think about when we're managing these longitudinal studies and how we assess people at different stages. And what I want to do is draw on a number of examples of recent research to really showcase some of the best attributes of longitudinal studies and what you can do with them. And also to talk a little bit about the policy implications of the studies. So to start off with, to sort of give you an idea of what the cohort studies are, as Paul has said, at the Centre for Longitudinal Studies, we look after three of the national British birth cohort studies. And Britain is really unique in the world in having these longitudinal resources. Because although there are longitudinal studies in the States and in Europe, nowhere else has got these birth cohort studies. And particularly going back as far as 1946 and then 1958, which means that we've got data on people's birth and early life as well as their adult life. And it was just announced by David Willits a few weeks ago that that a plan for the 2012 or 2013 cohort study is definitely going ahead. So there will be a new study to add to the British portfolio of studies. So at CLS, we look after three of the studies and they're very multi-purpose, multidisciplinary studies, as you'll see. We try and cover a lot of different subject matter. What I'll do is I'll talk through in some detail the 1958 study, because then that gives you a sense of the design of the studies, and then go very quickly through the 1970 cohort. 
So when the study started back in 1958, it wasn't envisaged that it would be a longitudinal study. It was a perinatal mortality study. It was motivated by concerns in the perinatal mortality rate, despite the fact that we'd had the National Health Service for about 10 years. There were still high rates of, of stillbirth and perinatal mortality. And so they basically sent midwives out across Britain and said, in a particular week, we want you to collect data on all the women that you deliver. Yes? So at that stage, there was no sense of consent or you know, whether it was ethical or not to do this. The midwife would have just said, well, Mrs. Elliot, you're in a study. Yeah? So you've got fantastic response rates <laughs> on slightly sort of dodgy grounds, perhaps, back in 1958. And it was everybody born in one week in March. So it's a nationally representative sample, very good response. But my really bad joke is they're all Pisces. So it's not that representative. Okay. Um, then, in the mid-60s, the Plowden Committee was doing a review of primary education, realised it didn't have very much empirical evidence to base their review on, and the story goes they got in touch with the people who'd collected the original 1958 study and said, we've got about £200,000, can you do us a study in the next year? And that motivated the study becoming a longitudinal study. And it wasn't clear whether the study would just carry on through childhood and then stop. So it's always been called the National Child Development Study, which seems a bit strange now that people are in their 50s. Um, but then there was a, a, a sort of a progress report done and a, a scoping study done, to pilot study, to see whether it would be possible to follow people up into adult life. And on the basis of that, yes, there was data collection at 23. And then you can see quite intermittent data collection through adult life. And that's partly because of the difficulty of having funding for social research, particularly during the sort of Thatcher era from sort of 1979 onwards. So you can see really quite big gaps here, 23 to 33, then to 42. And now we're collecting data more regularly. Multi-purpose study, as I've said, really trying to look at many different aspects of people's lives. We started with over 17,000. We've now got about 10,000 individuals who are still participating. That sounds like quite a big drop, but you've got to bear in mind that about 1,500 of those 17,000 have died by age 50, and about another 1,500 have emigrated. So in a way, your sort of base number is more like 14,000. So not bad in terms of um, attrition rates, and I'm happy to answer more questions about that. It's tended to be a very quantitative, highly structured study. Clearly, that's important when you're making comparisons with large groups and between different groups. But more recently, we have introduced some more qualitative work as well so that people can do sort of more mixed methods research using the data. And we're co-funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. So this gives you a sort of picture of data collection over the years. And I'm not going to go through this in huge detail, but just to sort of highlight... One of the sort of unique selling points of the study is the fact that we've got data through childhood from a number of different sources. So as well as there being an interview with the parent, normally the mother, of course, back in the 
late 50s, early 60s. We've also got data collected from teachers. So things like assessments of the children's behaviour would be done by the parent and then also by the teacher in school. There were also tests done in school that I'll talk more about and the children had medical examinations. So we've really got very rich data from childhood that then means we've got a lot more sort of control factors we can look at when we're doing analysis to see how early life might impact on later life. And I'll give some examples of that later. And you can see the sort of decline in numbers here from 17,500 to around 10,000. The other thing to highlight is the fact that um, in the sort of mid-40s, we did a biomedical sweep funded by MRC and Wellcome. So it really is a multi-purpose study that collects data so it's more medical and also social science oriented. And this is another way of sort of thinking about the data. So if you imagine your sort of hypothetical individual born in 1958, these are all the different ages that they've been surveyed at and then different examples of sort of questions that have been asked. So some things are repeated measures, so maths and reading tests at 7, 11 and 16. We'd have events like if the parents separated or divorced and what age that happened. Um, assessments from the teachers about how interested parents were in their child's schoolwork. Um, exam results were matched in with the data, so we've got sort of like their official results from the school that were matched in to each individual. And then we've got any sort of significant life events recorded. These are often collected retrospectively, so the age at which someone gets married, if they have children. And we also collect work histories. So we know the beginning and end date of jobs, whether they're part-time, full-time, social class, all those sorts of things. And then lots of different variables in adult life as well. This is just a few examples to give you a sense of the breadth of the study. Now, there really are just a few examples on this slide because we've got more than 17,000 variables on each individual, so more than 17,000 pieces of information going through the life course. And aspirations, sorry, that came in a bit late, but that, we've got that as well. So looking at the most um, recent survey, we did a structured interview at age 50, and I won't read out this list, but you can see the sort of broad range of different topics that are covered. And typically what happens is we recruit a field work agency by um, competitive tender. And so individual interviewers will go out into people's homes with a laptop and do a CAPI interview, so computer-assisted personal interviewing. And one thing I'll focus on more later is memory and concentration, because 50 is a sort of interesting age, because to some extent we're interested in how early life has impacted on people and how they're doing at 50. So in some ways, the data we're collecting is outcomes. But then also 50, but some people say it's a good time to take a baseline for ageing because very few people at 50 have really started declining through age. So it's a good time to get things like cognitive capability and physical capability so that then you can see trajectories of, of decline. But um, one of my colleagues got into trouble with the interviewers for saying that 50 was sort of old or middle-aged, and we learned to call it late youth. <laughs> so. so that's the structure of the 58. The 1970, I won't talk about it in as much detail, but um, very similar study. But, you know, historically interesting in that it was designed by a different research team. And so you can see that somewhat frustratingly in... 
in the childhood, the ages at which data was collected are slightly different, so 5 and 10 instead of 7 and 11. But now that people are in adult life, we're very much working on the studies together and making sure that the data is comparable. And similar um, structure so that in childhood we've got data collected directly from the children as well as parents and teachers. And you know, these studies always are, to some extent, a historic artefact. So one of the problems with the age 16 data for the 1970 cohort is those of you who remember 1986 might remember it was a great year for teacher strikes. So the response rates to some parts of the questionnaire weren't great because teachers weren't prepared to, to cooperate with the study because they weren't at work. So a bit more detail about the 2004 sweep of the 1970 study because I'll talk a bit more about some of the research that's been done on this and some policy implications in a few minutes. So there were three different stages to this. So the sort of standard interview with an interviewer and the laptop, a self-completion section. So what we tend to do is anything that's seen as a bit more sensitive, the laptop will be given to the individual so that they can fill in questions without the interviewer knowing what they're saying. So things like drinking and crime and well-being, sort of talking about depression, that's seen as something better done as a self-completion. But also there were an extensive group of adult assessments focusing on functional literacy, numeracy and dyslexia. And this is, I think, the only study, I've been told, that's got data on dyslexia in childhood and in adulthood. So it's those sorts of repeated measures that are seen as very useful. And then the other thing that was done when cohort members were 34 was for half of them, so one in two sample, their children were also surveyed and assessments were done with the children. And that created a bit of a sort of tension or a debate because in some ways people wanted to use exactly the same assessments that had been done years before when the parents were young. But then there's also the thought, but assessments have progressed and you know, we're in a different age now, so we ought to be using a diff- you know, more advanced assessments with their, their children. So that's something we might want to talk about more later. And these were the key questions that were asked. So you can see very similar to the things that were asked with the 1958 study. So looking at people's family life, economic circumstances, self-reported health, basic skills, health behaviour, wide range of things. So that's sort of very brief overview of those two adult studies, people who are now in, in their adult life. One of the things that I've written about is narrative and thinking about narratives in qualitative and quantitative research. And I just want to sort of highlight some of the narrative elements of these studies. And people often think, well, they can't be narrative because it's all about collecting very structured data, and sort of questionnaire data, and narratives about sort of stories and text. But really, underlying the studies, the basic design could be said to be a narrative one because we're tracing individual lives through time. This is very different from something like the British Social Attitude Survey where you may be able to say how the population is changing over time but you're not linking individuals through time. You're doing a repeated cross-sectional study as opposed to this, which is a longitudinal study. And so we could construct individual case studies and sometimes when you want to make a good example to really illustrate some statistical modelling you could go back to the data and sort of join the dots and create narrative case histories. They're also narrative in that really they should force us to focus more on the historical context 
in which the data is being collected. So that we don't just make statements about, you know, growing up in a lone parent family has this impact or being a woman has that impact. What we're talking about is people living in a particular time in a particular place. So we're talking about, you know, Britain in the 1990s or Britain in the 1960s. But also, by making comparisons between cohorts, we then can create a sort of meta-narrative about social change. And I want to give you some examples of some of these different narrative elements. So, to some extent, then, we can make comparisons between the 58 and the 70 study. Um, So we can make comparisons between 16-year-olds who were 16 in 1974 and 16-year-olds who were 16, 12 years later in 1986... And as the cohorts get older, we can make comparisons in adult life. So that's how we might start creating a narrative about social change. But we could create a narrative about how early life impacts on later life by looking at individual cohorts and looking at life cycle effects. So an example of the sort of narrative of social change is if we look at the employment and unemployment conditions when these two different groups of young people were leaving school... Back in 1974, when the 1958 cohort was 16, only about half a million people were unemployed, and that had gone up to over 3 million just 12 years later. So looking at the sort of context in which people are reaching different stages in their life course can then help us to understand why different generations have different outcomes and, and uh, different trajectories. And then this is another nice example from a colleague of mine, an ex-colleague of mine, Jenny Neuberger. And this brings in the 1946 cohort as well. And this is what I might call a nested narrative, because here we've actually got sort of individual narratives as well as a narrative of social change. So along the x-axis here, we've got age, and we've got the three different cohorts. So this is the 1946 cohort... And this is the proportion of women who were in paid employment at each different age. So we can see that for the 1946 cohort, there was this sort of typical U-shaped pattern here where women tended to be in the labour market in their early, late teens, early 20s, you know, leaving school quite early, not necessarily going into university but going into employment. And then a big dip where people are having children in their late 20s and early 30s and then coming up to about 80%, about 0.8% of people in employment by their mid-40s. So that, in a way, tells us a story about an individual woman's life or a group of women and the sort of typical pattern. But then we can also look at a narrative of social change here because we've got the 58 and the 70 cohort. So you can see the 58 cohort is a similar shape, but a much less of a dip there and that's because women are spending less time out of the labour market looking after children there's more women just having one child and returning quickly to the labour market so a slightly different pattern there and then a very different pattern for the 1970 cohort you can see where you haven't got that dip at all yet by the time the data was analysed which was at the age 34 point yeah, so you can see how you can use data from a number of different cohorts to start building up stories about people's experiences over time, but also historic change. So I'll talk about the Millennium Cohort Study and then give you more of an insight into some research findings. 
So the Millennium Study is the same basic design, but it has a number of different features because it's a study started 30 years after the 1970 study. So one of the differences about it is that the children were born across a whole year rather than being born in one specific week. And that was partly for practical reasons, that if you're getting a professional fieldwork agency to do your interviewing, you just haven't got the, the number of interviewers to do everybody in one week. But also, scientifically, there's interest in, period, in uh, seasonal effects of you know, when you're born, whether you're born in the summer or whether you're born early in the academic year or late in the academic year. So it makes more sense to have the whole spectrum of, uh, of birthdays. And the other thing that's different from the other studies is the first sweep was at nine months, so that you've got the children a little bit older, and more regular data collection through childhood. So by the time the Millennium Cohort comes along, I think there's more appreciation of the value of these studies and more of a, a preparedness to invest resources in, in the study. And we're just in preparation for the age 11 sweep of the Millennium Cohort. And the other difference is that it's got additional funding from Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So it's got uh, an augmented sample in those places to make sure that we can make more comparisons between the countries. And also a focus on concerns about child poverty and minority ethnic populations, so an oversampling of those groups as well. So the statistician who was working with us at the time, Ian Pluis, did quite a complicated sort of sample design to make sure that we'd oversampled groups that we're particularly interested in. And this is a sort of diagram of the data that's been collected. And another sort of big change from the earlier studies is the focus on collecting data directly from fathers. That, you know, whereas in the past it said it was acceptable just to treat the mother as the sort of main parent, now there's much more of an interest in, in fathering as well. And there was some additional funding to get some data from older siblings at age three and age five. And also now much more ability to match data from surveys with educational records and medical records. So we've been asking consent of the parents and assent from the children so that we can match in that extra administrative data. So these are the sorts of things that are covered in the Millennium Cohort Study surveys. Um, so you can see from the ticks what's been uh, collected at different ages. And I'll talk a little bit more in detail about the cognitive assessments that were um, carried out. And you can see that... We did a child self-completion for the first time at age seven. And some of you might have picked up this leaflet. I've put a few leaflets out if people are interested. So we're also keen to make sure we give feedback to cohort members. And this leaflet shows the way that we tried to feed back to seven-year-olds so that they could see some basic statistics on the study and basic information about what uh, they told us. So, to talk a bit about assessment through the life course and what some of the challenges have been for the cohort studies. So, there are perhaps sort of three different stages we might think of and the sorts of tests that are, are done. So, in childhood, I think one of the challenges is how early can you assess a child? Because people are very keen to get very early data before the child sort of been contaminated by the world almost. So you've sort of got the, the data in, in just the first two or three years of life. And we'll see some examples of that. But then as children go into school, particularly with the older studies, you know, there's sort of typical reliance on maths and reading tests, some of them better than others. 
Um, but also now an interest in things like decision-making and doing more sort of cognitive, psychological, neuropsychological testing. So childhood, you know, a real emphasis on assessing the developing child and obviously an ability to match in qualifications to the survey data. In mid-adulthood, there's been sort of less assessment in each sweep, but where there has been an interest is in basic skills assessment. I'll give you a very specific example in a few minutes of some research that Anna Vignoles has done on basic skills. So it's been much more around numeracy and literacy rather than getting people to do sort of endless cognitive tests. But then as people approach later life, there's very much this interest in cognitive decline and interesting in the changing demographics of society and awareness that there will be this sort of ageing population. And so an interest in whether we can detect things like Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia early, so whether we can do memory tests and things that might then be useful later on. And also trying to measure things like executive function and other ways in which the, the brain is functioning. But as I've said, there is this sort of need to balance comparability over time with using the most effective assessment methods. And one example of this was the a sort of standard um, test in childhood is where you show children pictures of different everyday household objects and get them to name them. And of course, when you look back at the 1970s and 1958, 1960s, um, and you show people a telephone, a telephone now looks totally different. So when they piloted the assessments for the children of the 1970 cohort, they realised they had to change the picture for, for the, the phone. But, uh, and the other issue that we always have is that we don't have a huge amount of resource and because these are multidisciplinary studies, there's always competition for time in the interview. And so what people are always looking for is assessments that can be done as quickly as possible with as few questions as possible. And clearly, you know, that there's a real tension there between getting very valid and reliable measures. And... The other sort of final issue to highlight is that because these are studies of the whole population, there's this emphasis on trying to get assessments that provide good discriminators across the whole of the spectrum. And there's quite a lot of, particularly I suppose more in the sort of medical field, where there might be tests that tell you whether somebody is clinically depressed or not. But what we would be interested in is sort of happiness and depression across the whole of the population, not just isolating one particular group. And the other sort of overriding issue here is that because these are longitudinal studies, they really only work if we manage to keep people engaged in the studies long term and they improve with age. And so whatever assessments we do, they have to be very acceptable to the respondents. So that's another reason for trying to keep things quite short and making sure that there are ways of making the sort of level of the assessment applicable to the individual. So to go into a little bit more detail about the cognitive assessments that were done with the Millennium Cohort Study. So, so far there have been these tests at 3, 5 and 7. Um, so British Ability Scales, Naming Vocabulary and the Bracken Basic Concept Scale, and particularly the school readiness part of that, were used at age 3. And then at age 5, I don't know if people have come across the Sally and Anne empathy test. 
couple of people are nodding. But it's basically a story about two little girls in a sort of cartoon, and it's about whether you can work out that Sally has hidden Anne's ball somewhere else so that Sally will re- won't know where it's hidden. So this is all about empathy, and it's sort of a test of whether people have got some level of, sort of Asperger's disease. Um, and then three subscales, the British Ability Scales. Then at age seven, Sally and Anne was used again reading, maths, and this pattern construction is where you give children blocks and you get them to sort of match up, you know, they've got to make a picture, so that it's sort of trying to look at different aspects of, of cognition. So some of the sort of evidence that's come out already from the Millennium Cohort Study, people might even remember a number of years ago now, there was quite a sort of media splash around the difference in development of children from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So I think everybody is aware that people from poorer backgrounds aren't going to be doing as well in cognitive tests, but what was good about the Millennium Cohort Study was providing a sort of more accurate measure of that and really highlighting just how big a difference there was. But another sort of issue that we have, or difficulty that we have, is that when, pe- when statisticians or researchers are analysing the data and then they're presenting things in terms of the number of standard deviations difference there is or log odds, then if you try and get that into the media, the journalists aren't interested. So we have endless arguments about how translatable the assessments are to months of development because that's a metric that people find a lot easier to understand. But often the researchers doing the work are aware that it's a little bit dodgy around the edges, that a lot of these scales, you might be able to say, if you're looking at a very narrow range, that it's three months development. But once you start getting to the wider ranges, um, that some of these figures can be approximations rather than exact. So that's a sort of tension we have between you know, how scientific and exact you are and how much you want to make sure that the results get out into the public domain. So these are some examples of sort of media impact that the, the work had. So things like appearing on the front page of the Times and Daily Telegraph. And you know, there is already evidence that this data has had an impact on policy and that it's sort of fueled this desire to really make sure that there's investment in early life and in preschool provision and so that that's where the sort of focus of resources is. So then the plans for cognitive assessment at age 11, so this is just currently going through its sort of first pilot and the actual work will be done in 2012, but two parts of the British Ability Scales and for the first time we're using these um, tests that have been developed by Cambridge Cognition, there may be some people here who know people in Cambridge Cognition and know the CANTAB assessments, I don't know. Um, so there's two tasks that are being given to the children to do with a touchscreen laptop. So the first one is a memory task. And it's officially called the spatial working memory task, but for parents and children we just call it the memory task. And then there's also this Cambridge gambling task that's been renamed the decision-making task. And I'll just tell you a bit more about those two. So the memory task is where the children see three boxes on a screen and they choose which one to touch. They're just guessing where the blue square is and they basically have to find a series of blue squares. And at the beginning it's very easy because there's just three boxes to look at. You have to remember not to keep looking in the same box because once you've found a blue square there, it won't be there again. And it builds up to be eight different boxes. So it's all to do with sort of working memory and whether you can remember 
where the blue square's been in the past. And then the decision-making task is really quite a nice assessment. And it's been called the Cambridge Gambling Task by some people, but in a way it's better called the decision-making task. And this is seen as a way of testing risk behaviour, risk-taking behaviour outside of sort of educational environment. And it is sort of almost like gambling or sort of assessing odds and probability. So the children are told there's a yellow token somewhere in one of these red or blue boxes and they have to decide whether to bet on the red or the blue. So they then touch the screen and choose whether it's going to be in the red or the blue. And they do a few rounds of that and so it's measured how well they they do on that. But then they're also given points and they can sort of gamble or sort of wager different levels of points depending on how certain they are that they know where the, the yellow box is. And there was a lot of discussion about having this and the importance of having this test at age 11 because this sort of way of looking at risk-taking behaviour and impulsivity is particularly interesting for people who are interested in things like drug-taking, alcohol, um, teenage pregnancy. But particularly in terms of substance abuse, the thought is you've got to test this very early on so that you're sure of the causal direction. Because if you wait until you're looking at older teenagers, you can't know whether it's the sort of gamblers who've decided to start drinking or whether it's people who like to drink and have already had a lot of alcohol that's affected their brain that then get to be more risk-taking or less risk-averse. So this is quite an interesting innovation. And this is a good example of the sort of test that wouldn't have been possible with the earlier cohorts because, you know, the touch screen makes it much more possible. Okay, so looking at sort of the other end of the age spectrum and wanted to sort of talk a bit about the cognitive assessments that we did at age 50. And so we... Again, you know, very limited in the time we had. So our cognitive assessments just took six minutes in the interview, but apparently the cohort members quite enjoyed it. They just answered lots of boring questions about whether they'd saved up for pensions or not. So doing a little memory test was uh, quite a favourite one. And people may remember that on the Today programme, there was quite a splash about the fact that women's memory is better than men's. And um, John Humphreys actually did the memory test with my colleague Brian Dodgen. You've forgotten that one. But anyway, so <laughs> it's amazing what, what things capture the media's imagination and uh, mean that you get. Um, so memory, obviously, test of verbal learning and recall. So 10 words read out by the computer and then the person's asked to recall them. And then we do another couple of tests and then see how many words people can recall when they're not expecting to be asked after a delay. Animal naming, literally just say to people... How many animals can you name in one minute? And some people are really good at this. If you're good at thinking of a category of animals, reeling them off and then switching to another category, you can get dozens. But other people dry up very quickly, as you'll see. Um, And then also letter cancellation, which is probably the least favourite of mine, which is where you get this big letter grid and you have to go through and cross out all the P's and W's. So it's quite a boring thing. Again, just have a minute to do it as quickly as possible. So just to give you a sense of some of the results from this, the word list recall... A fairly nice distribution there. And, but again, you know, you've only got a 10-point scale. 
for many things, you prefer a, a broader scale. For the 1946 study, they have 15 questions rather than 10. The fact that we've got 10 makes us more comparable with things like the Health and Retirement Survey in the US, and also means it takes less time to do. The delayed recall, you can see you get a slightly better normal distribution. Um, and so people, sort of on average, get about one, one and a half words less after a delay. So, yeah, the mean there's 5.4 and it was 6.5. So, yeah, about one word difference on those. Animal naming, you can see a nice distribution there. And then you get this weird little hiccup near the bottom. So there's some people who really do only think of four or five words and then just stop. So that's something that hasn't been looked at in a lot of detail yet. And it would be interesting to see who's in this, this little sort of tail of the distribution. Um, and then letter cancellation, there's both speed and accuracy measures. So that's the speed, and then that's the accuracy, so the number of P's and W's that people have missed when they're going through and crossing out P's and W's. So it gives you a sense of, sort of distributions. But then my colleague Brian Dodgen and uh, Matt Brown did some nice research, just some very preliminary descriptive things, seeing what some of the predictors were of cognitive ability at age 50. And this demonstrates the way that you can use the cohort data to look at early life and how it predicts later life. So as we might expect, the high general ability measured in childhood also then predicts um, how good you are at cognitive tests at age 50. Being female means you're better at, you've got better memory, higher social class, but actually this was a pretty minimal effect once you'd controlled for the other things. High qualifications, but also I think more interestingly perhaps, being in good health and not being depressed were both significant controlling for all the other factors. And you can see that it wasn't a great model, but R squared 13%, so accounting for about 13% in, of the variance in memory at age 50. So that was one model on memory. And then verbal fluency, again, an R squared of about 14%, so not too bad as a model, but um, far fewer factors found to be significant. But again, interesting that people who say that they're in excellent health, this was a self-completion, self-assessment of, of their health, are doing better this sort of cognitive capability. So sort of more optimistic, positive, healthy people seem to be doing better. But as I say, what will be interesting as well about this data is then taking it forward and being able to look at trajectories of decline as people go into older age groups. So I'm now going to just move on and talk about some research that I think really demonstrates the way that you can use cross-cohort comparisons as well as looking at using early life data to control for some of the um, mechanisms in later life. So I'm going to talk about this work that was done by my colleague Anna Vignoles, who's in a sister department at the Institute of Education. And she's done a lot of work on basic skills, on literacy and numeracy. And in this piece of work, they particularly drew on the literacy and numeracy tests that were done at age 34 on the 1970 cohort, and also some tests that were done on the 1958 cohort at age 37, but it was just a subsample of the 1958 cohort. So most of this is sort of based on the 1970 cohort. 
And what they were interested in is whether people's measured basic skills in literacy and numeracy have any impact on their earnings. So Anna's a, an economist, so she usually uses earnings as her dependent variable. But the advantage of using the cohort studies for this is the ability to use the data from childhood in order to control for some sort of underlying basic ability so that you can actually isolate the impact of basic skills on, on wages. But then the thing that I think makes this piece of work particularly nice is that they did the work not just on the 1970 cohort, but also on the 1958 cohort. Because one question is, well, do basic skills have the same value in the labour market over time? As the labour market changes, does it mean the same to be literate or numerate? And as I've said here, the richness of data, the fact we've got so many variables, means that you can construct quite complex models and you can really control for a wide range of different observable characteristics. So these are just some examples of some of the sort of tests that were done, uh, the different sort of levels at uh, age 34. So this is one of the very sort of basic tests, how much do all the coins in the box add up to? Um, and then this was more sort of higher end... Julie has a part-time job in a restaurant and how much is she paid altogether based on her pay and her hours. So these are the sorts of things that cohort members were asked to do in their own home. The interviewer would have been there with a, a laptop asking them these and presumably with a piece of paper and a pencil for some of them. And one of the things it enables us to do is to make, and this is in Anna's paper, to make comparisons between the cohorts in terms of their numeracy and literacy skills. So you can see here the numeracy of the sample and you can see the change over time. So at the bottom here in the dark blue, we've got entry level two or below. So I gather this is sort of seven, age seven and below. Yeah? So that's the level, but we're talking about people in their 30s. So for numeracy, nearly a quarter of the 1958 cohort weren't really doing as well as a seven-year-old would do on the tests. And by 12 years later for the 1970 cohort, that's reduced to 14%. So you can see a sort of improvement in numeracy skills over time, particularly in terms of not being as many in this very bottom group. But at the top end... There's no difference. So about 27% of both cohorts are reaching level two. So that's about age 16 level. I'm sure most of you know more about these sort of levels than I do. I don't, don't quite know who's in the audience, but we can engage in this later. So that's numeracy. Literacy, a rather different pattern overall. So, you know, I think it's more sort of positive. You've got these sort of bigger pink blocks at the top. So that's showing that far more of the cohorts are reaching this level to age 16 or above. As I say, they're in their mid-30s when they're doing these tests and far fewer of them are at this very low level. But again, you can see an improvement over time in terms of the basic skills of the cohort. So that's a sort of one-dimensional narrative, saying basic skills are getting better. But as I promised you, Anna's um, analysis was much more sophisticated than just that sort of descriptive narrative. And so the models that they 
carried out showed that literacy and numeracy skills both had a significant relationship with earnings, even when you're controlling thing, for things like cognition in childhood and levels of qualification. So even if you took two individuals who'd both got O-levels, then they, if, they, if one of them had got better levels of literacy and numeracy, they were going to have uh, better earnings. And interestingly, effects were very similar for both men and women, whereas other characteristics seem to advantage men and women differently. And really quite a substantial difference. So one standard deviation difference in skill levels associated with about 15% increase in earnings. That was for men, I think it was about 13% for women, so one, three, 13%. So fairly similar in terms of the impact of, of skill on earnings. But then, as I say, there's a sort of further dimension to this because by carrying out... This was done with the 1970 cohort, but then by carrying out very similar models using the 1958 cohort data, it was possible to see whether the value of basic skills had changed over time or remained stable. And actually, it was a very similar story across the the two cohorts. So although we saw from those descriptive block charts that people's skills are improving, you might think that if you've got a better skilled workforce that actually then it's not worth as much to you in the labour market. But what this is showing is that the increase in supply of people with good skills is matched by demand for higher level skills within the workplace. So I think that's a nice study because it really showcases the different aspects of, of the cohorts and what you can do with them. So I was going to move on and talk about Leon Feinstein's work, which looks more at early life and some of the follow-up work that's been done in the Millennium Cohort. But why don't I just pause there for a minute and see if there are questions about the, the Vignoles paper. No, you're a very quiet audience. Hopefully we can have some discussion at the end. So... People might have heard of Leon Feinstein's work. I'll show you a graph in a minute that some of you might recognise. But uh, I think Leon was very brave because he used the 1970 data and he tried to construct a measure at 22 months. So if you think that's, you know, before a child is properly talking, really, at 22 months, to try and get a very early assessment of cognition. So he did this sort of developmental in, in developmental index at 22 months, 42 months, and then at five years and 10 years. And to sort of see whether the 22-month data was valuable at all, he tested to see whether it would predict outcomes at 26. And sure enough, it did. There did seem to be some consistency over the life course. But his interesting findings were these ones of how much children with wealthy or educated parents, even who had really poor early scores, tended to catch up whereas those who had worse-off parents who seemed to be doing very well at age 22 months then declined. And this is a quite a nice graphic that shows it. This is from Leon's um, paper in Econometrica. And so what he did was he took the, sort of top, sorry, the top and the bottom 10%, but also controlled for high social class and low social class so you can see here the children in orange are the ones who were doing really well early on. They were in the top 10% of the distribution early on, but they came from a poor socioeconomic background. And you can see the decline there 
the orange line declining right down here so that by age 10 that small group is doing much worse. And in contrast to that, this is the, the purple diamonds are those who seem to be doing really badly at 22 months but then improve hugely. Now, I wanted to show this graph because in a way it's a little, I think it's a little bit controversial. This. Have people come across it before? No? Okay, so a few people have. And there were lots of apocryphal stories about the fact that Gordon Brown used to have this on the wall of his office and it was seen as being very influential. But, you know, it does raise questions about assessment and how, how reliable and valid the assessment is at age 22 months. Because this is a very early stage to be measuring people. And also, it's a nice design in that it tells a really good story because Leon took the real extremes. But because he's only taken people in the top 10% and the bottom 10%, he's got much smaller sample sizes than you would have if you used the whole cohort. I think this comes back to what I was talking about earlier, this sort of tension when we're running these sort of studies and we're researchers and we want the science to be good, but we also want it to have a policy impact. Is trying to balance out sort of best ways of making sure that we've got really sort of robust models, but that we can communicate them. And clearly these sorts of diagrams communicate very well to politicians and policy makers. And then, of course, the question is, that was for the 1970 cohort. So we're talking about children growing up in the 1970s. Well, is that still relevant today? And so people like Joe Blandon and Steve Machin, um, another set of economists, have used data from the Millennium Cohort study to try and replicate Leon's findings and see how similar... The, the data looks today. So this is just the sort of early stages of this. And if you want to read more about it, there's a whole chapter in um, a book about the Millennium Cohort Study, Children of the 21st Century, Birth to Age 5. And this shows a sort of si very similar story to Leon Feinstein's story. But what will be interesting is then to see how children do as they progress through school. But here you can see they've got three different groups. They've got a high, middle and low income. But they've used the same basic methodology of looking at the, the bottom 10% and the top 10% and seeing the way that over time the sort of family background seems to have a real impact on children's cognitive development and how well they're doing on these cognitive assessments. So Centre for Longitudinal Studies is funded as a resource centre. We don't actually get any money from ESRC to do our own research. We get a little bit of money from government departments to use the data and do research, and we can apply for extra grants. But we're really funded to be a resource and encourage other people to do research. And all the data that we've collected is available from the UK Data Archive. So anybody who wants to do non-for-profit, not-for-profit research can access that data. As I said, there's sort of 17,000 variables in one cohort, so it's a bit daunting. And so as a resource centre, we can also provide support for people. And if someone wants to say, well, before I embark on this, can you do some tables for me? Then, yes, we can offer that sort of service to, to give people an insight into what's in the data. Um, and we provide things like the annotated questionnaire. So if you want to look in great detail at exactly how questions have been asked, that's all there. And the technical reports from fieldwork agencies about the fieldwork and the piloting and how that's been structured. And um, I was talking before the, 
this event to a couple of people about the fact of how difficult it is to make sure you've got good data dictionaries so that people can really find the variables that they need for analysis. But that's the sort of thing that we develop, as well as running events and, and workshops. So we've got a couple of workshops coming up in, in May, one-day introductory workshops. If anyone here wanted to actually come along, hear more in detail about the studies and then get some hands-on experience, then those are available. So I've said that the data is free and available and we have a registration procedure because we're also balancing the fact that we want the data to be used as widely as possible but we also want to make sure that we safeguard cohort members' anonymity and confidentiality. So one of the things people are doing when they sign up is to say they won't try and identify anybody. Now clearly we don't give out names and addresses and postcodes and things that would be identifying but equally you know, because we've got longitudinal data and a huge amount of information, if you knew somebody was born in the cohort week, you might be able to find them in the data set. So we do have a sort of registration procedure for that. Um, and yes, we can answer individual inquiries and really want to encourage as many people as possible to use the data. About 150 papers a year get published as a result of the data, and it's used all around the world. But, you know, we could have four or even ten times that many outputs and people wouldn't be redoing the same analyses. There's such a wide diversity of, of data. And, you know, it would be excellent for people doing PhD studies, but also, you know, later on in their careers. And it can be useful as well to contextualise other studies. If people want to collect their own data, perhaps in a sort of geographic area, but they don't know how representative the data they're collecting is, they could use it as a benchmark as well to, to make some comparisons. So some of the sort of policy relevance over the years. And the other thing to sort of highlight, I've brought a few leaflets along. We try and keep cohort members engaged by sending them information and particularly for their 50th birthday and 40th birthday, for the 1958 and the 1970 cohorts, we produce these timelines, which sort of give a sense of changes in Brit British society over time, and also highlighting some of the policy implications from the studies. Because when you talk to cohort members, they want to be involved with it if it's useful for other people. So... The 58 study was one of the first studies that highlighted the health impact of smoking in pregnancy. And this was very serendipitous, that when they were planning that perinatal mortality study, somebody said, oh, well, let's ask the mums if they smoke or not. But there was no particular scientific reason at the time for asking, but it's very helpful. Um, child poverty, in a way, I sort of talked about this, sort of highlighting not just the fact that children in poverty do worse in terms of development, but trying to quantify that and just showing how extreme the differences can be. There's been a lot of media attention to the issue of declining intergenerational mobility, and an awful lot of that is based on the 1958 and the 1970 cohorts, particularly work, again, done by um, Joe Blandon and, uh, and uh, Steve Machen and Paul Gregg. And so, again, this is where having data in childhood and adult life means that it's more possible to do more sort of detailed information, more detailed studies on, on mobility. Looking at disability, um, health continuities over the life course and health inequalities, crime and antisocial behaviour. So you can see this wide range here. And so more sort of very policy relevant, there was a whole lot of work done by Lorraine Dearden about 15 years ago, which was looking at the returns to a degree. So 
Last time they were having lots of debates about whether there would be graduate taxes or fees. She used the 1958 cohort to say, well, let's look at people who were doing the same in terms of their cognitive assessments in childhood. You know, one group went ahead and got a degree, the other group didn't. Did the degree actually make a difference? And sure enough, yes, sort of a, a big percentage difference in their um, uh, final earnings. And I've shown you some of the work on improving adult basic skills, but another sort of policy element of this was looking at intergenerational transmission. And so I think I explained that at age 34, it wasn't just the cohort members in the 1970 cohort that were tested, but their children were tested as well. And one of the sort of interests was, does the basic skill level of the parents have much of an impact on the children? And it was found that as long as the parents had a sort of middling level of skills, it was okay. But that the group of parents who had really poor skills, their children were the ones that were suffering. So in terms of thinking about where we need to target resources at improving adult basic skills, that gave some information on that. And there's been a lot of work done on women's employment. So my colleague Heather Joshi has done a lot of work on women's earnings over the life course and also the impact of maternal employment and nursery provision on children's development. So that's had an impact on things like maternity leave provision. So these are some of the sort of policy-relevant questions that can be asked. But one of the issues about the cohort studies is trying to make sure that they're policy-relevant but not completely policy-driven, because policy changes so quickly. And the point about these studies is that they're a really long-lasting resource and at the moment, you know, there's a great obsession with things like obesity, but we don't want to ask people a whole hour's worth of questions about their physical activity and what their diet is, because that may be less of an issue in future. So it's always trying to keep the breadth of the studies. So just in conclusion, these are some of the sort of research questions that are best addressed by this sort of data, because clearly you need different types of research design and different types of data resource, depending on your interests. But, you know, excellent for looking at the long-term outcomes of experiences and decisions in early life. Also looking at links between different life domains. So how does women's employment and fertility impact on each other? How does health impact on employment, employment impact on mental health, those sorts of issues? But also looking at just describing individual trajectories, now, how different are the 1958 cohort from the 1970 cohort in terms of their relationship histories? You know, big difference in terms of whether they cohabited first or married first, but in terms of numbers of partners and duration of partnerships, we can do descriptions of that. And I gave you some examples of how we can look at this sort of narrative about social change, which has got individual narratives embedded within it. And finally, we can look at things around intergenerational transmission because you've got data from early life about the grandparents in a way and then you've got the cohort members and then you've got the cohort members' children. So those a whole range of, of information. So we've got lots of information on our website, which I'd draw your attention to. And just sort of at the end of last year, we started experimenting with Twitter. So do follow us on Twitter if you like to tweet or read tweets. Then I think this is a great point for me to step in and say, well, I, I think our reticence to ask questions during the presentations because we were so fascinated to hear what was coming next. I think that was a really very interesting presentation. Well, thank you very much. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.